The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. And as always, I forget to tell people to do this, but uh, this time I'm going to remember. If you have two seconds, get a pen and paper ready because our host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Philip Forsberg, always has something important to say, and I bet you'd want to write it down. So we... uh, start each one of our shows, any of our veteran shows, and we do a number of veteran shows, and this one happens to be Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and it was brought to my attention by someone this weekend how important this show is, because people have forgotten about Desert Shield and Desert Storm and the reason that we went in there, and uh, I I was just flabbergasted at... Uh, uh, Jesse Waters did a man on the street thing, or or his person did, and um, I was just totally flabbergasted by it. Uh, The question was, at the time, what do you think about what's going on in the house? And the person he asked, the lady, said, whose house? I'll leave it at that. We'll be back in just a moment. We do all of our veteran shows and our... EMT first responder shows. We start out with a moment of silence and uh, ask you to uh, think about all the people that work for you and protect you. We'll be back in just a moment. Amen. And thank you. And we also do one other thing that uh, some people might consider a little bit crazy, but we don't consider it crazy at all, and that is that uh, we like to do get make, make sure everybody's heart is thumping along just fine, and uh, everybody remembers these from many years ago. So here we go. Feel all right now. Hey, I feel all right now. Do you feel like I do right now? Do you feel like I do right now? Motivated. Okay, we do feel good, and we're ready to go, and we're ready to get into 2023, and we're all ready to go, and uh, you're listening to America's Web Radio, and Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, I found out or this weekend how important it is, because people have forgotten, and... Uh, you know, what we're working with sometimes is just incredible. And uh, I don't know how many people were watching Jesse Waters the other night when his reporter did a... Uh, that's pretty good when you start out as a reporter and then you have your own reporters now. But anyway, his reporter with Man on the Street asked a lady 
what she thought about what was going on in the house. And she responded with, whose house? I just sort of leave it at that. I, I can't, you know, you can't make this stuff up. And uh, so we know how important it is to keep reminding folks of Desert Shield and Desert Storm and the folks that sacrificed either their ultimate sacrifice or just the sacrifice of being deployed and being away from their home and their family for quite a while. So, with that being said, Philip, you got a show for us today. I do, David. Uh, yeah, as far as the house, you know, uh, the answer to that one is it's the people's house. Uh, and, of course, the House of Representatives is supposed to be the most democratic uh, faction of our of our government aspect, uh, component, if you will, of our government, because the people are directly elected by the people. The uh, It was not the intent for the Senate. Of course, the Senate was supposed to be... The, the senators were supposed to be elected by the state legislatures, or selected and appointed. Uh, but... Uh, <clears throat> Woodrow Wilson was able to uh, jam through a change to that, which has led to the kind of nonsense we're seeing these days. So um, I wish everybody would join my appeal to repeal the 17th Amendment and return the appointment of senators back to the state, uh, to the states who are supposed to have uh, some degree of sovereignty in it. In that notwithstanding, um, I was given some thought today, David, to what exactly was going on in January of 1991, this being January, this being the, uh, our first new show of the new year, 2023. And I thought <clears throat> back to what things were like in January of uh, 1991. We had just finished uh, 1990. Uh, it was... Uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush's uh, full first full year as president, um, and uh, I had just checked out in the uh, Obi-Wan Mohawk in 1990, and uh, shortly thereafter found myself in the sand of uh, Saudi Arabia, in a town, uh, well, an airport not far from the town of Dammam, Saudi Arabia. Uh, and uh, it was a big uh, airport that was still under construction. We got there. The runways, of course, were completed, but all the different uh, facets of the of the terminal, uh, etc., were were under construction. I, I assume they had some sure. type of a of a uh, tower. So they had air traffic control facilities, without a doubt. Uh, they had radar. They had a TACAM. Uh, which if any of these folks uh, listening are civilian pilots you might not be familiar with the TACAN but uh, it's a tactical air navigation aid I think it was developed by the Navy um, and uh, it's uh, it's a beacon uh, and uh, it's uh, also uh, the difference between a TACAN and a VOR they operate on different frequencies, but 
back end always has what they call distance measuring equipment or DME uh, associated with it. VOR does not necessarily unless it's called a Vortac, which is a combination of a VOR and a TAC end. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we had a fully functional uh, airport with air traffic control and runways, runway lighting, uh, instrument landing systems, the like. Uh, we we didn't actually technically have an ILS. We had a uh, precision approach radar that the uh, the Air Force had set up uh, over on one of the runways. Now, were we manning uh, it, or was local managing it? No, no, the U.S. Uh, Air Force was uh, manning the control tower, um, and they provided the air traffic services for uh, that airport. I don't think it was open to commercial traffic. Um, but uh, a three four runway three four left was where all the um, the airlift, you know, cargo type uh, and personnel aircraft would land. The heavies over on three four. Yeah, well, some are heavy, uh, but uh, and then over on three four right, you'd have F sixteens, F A tens. And us uh, little Mohawks uh, over there, and uh, but uh, my recollection of January for the political situation, I remember James Baker was the uh, Secretary of State, and we watched with uh, some interest as uh, his um, talks between himself and the Iraqi foreign minister kind of broken down and uh, at one point uh, uh, James Baker announced that uh, Saddam had made a series of uh, miscalculations and uh, and any further miscalculations on his part were going to become very very costly. Now we didn't know for sure that we were going to go to uh, uh, actual uh, conflict uh, and uh, well busting caps at each other but uh, you know it seemed pretty evident at the time that that's where it was going uh, and um, it was uh, it was very interesting I remember the, the deadline for getting out of Kuwait uh was uh, was established by Secretary Baker as being the 15th of January, and uh, that was seemed it was rapidly approaching. Um, but the, uh, <clears throat> the we had made uh, preparations, and uh, we were getting all ready to go in. Uh, one fell swoop, the entire uh, 18th Airborne Corps uh, shifted way out to the west and uh, got uh, a line up um, on a front, basically, to drive in, uh, leading with the 101st to put um, to put uh, 100 Chinooks in the air and put the entire division uh, behind the Iraqi lines by about 100 kilometers, I believe. Wow. Uh, 
just the, just the thought of a hundred Chinooks would put the fear in you. Yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of equipment and a lot of uh, a lot of people and a lot of uh, a lot of firepower uh, moving at that at that great a speed. Uh, you know, uh, thinking back to uh, the strength of, of the 101st, as well as the 82nd, you know, on, on D-Day in uh, France, of course, they they jumped in. They had a great many of other guys hurt, uh, parachute landing, you know, shot as they descended in their parachutes, or those gliders that crashed. Um, I don't know if between the two divisions they had one division to put together. <clears throat> and, you know, folks scattered all over the place by the wind. Uh, and yet to, you know, to go and drop them in, in uh, an air assault in that way, uh, to just put a whole division in the enemy rear, uh, was just really amazing, tremendous. Um, if they had, if they had that capability in 1944, uh, well, things would have been over very quickly. But the um, <clears throat> uh, you know they went with what they had at the time, and uh, so we did have a tremendous advantage uh, as far as the weather. I did a little check on uh, uh, weather in Dammam, Saudi Arabia today, and it is uh, sixty-seven degrees and raining. Hmm. And uh, in fact, the average temperature. For uh, Damam in January, 61 degrees. So uh, it probably got down in the 50s while I was there, maybe the high 40s. Uh, I didn't, I hadn't, didn't see any ice that didn't come out of an ice maker. Uh, <laughs> but it was, uh, you know, it was cold enough to wear your your uh, gear, especially at night. Tonight, uh, or well, no, I guess. Wednesday, the uh, forecast low for uh, for Damam is uh, 48 degrees. So that's quite chilly. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, we need more than just shirt sleeves. Um, and, of course, the rain makes everything a mess. And it's supposed to clear out uh, tomorrow night, which means... Uh, There'll be no low, no cloud cover during the night, and in the desert, if you don't have cloud cover, the temperature's going to drop in the desert uh, rather precipitously. Um, so uh, there was mud. There was uh, still an ambiguous situation in our minds, what, uh, what exactly was going to go on. I do recall that uh, we were told... Um, you know, everybody knew that the that the fifteenth at midnight was the deadline for Saddam to get out, and so uh, some of the guys who were a little more motivated than myself wanted to be the first ones flying into combat. Uh, had asked to be on the schedule on the night of the sixteenth. Uh, I uh, had you know, kind of step back from that, let them go ahead. But, uh, the, uh, so, uh, with the, 
amount of missions that we were doing if I didn't fly on the 16th. I was going to fly on the 17th. And I remember uh, on the evening of the 16th, um, I had a mission that was scheduled for uh, first light on the 17th. Not not first light, but uh, just after midnight, I believe, on the 17th of January. Um, and the, uh, there was supposed to be an important meeting for the, uh, for the leadership. And, uh, since I was, uh, scheduled to fly, I was on rest prior to that. So I had to send one of my, uh, warrant officers to attend the, uh, meeting for me. And, uh, <clears throat> he came back and, uh, woke me up a little bit early in my rest. He told me that uh, <clears throat> I needed to uh, go down to the uh, supply point and draw my chemical protective suit and uh, take uh, the first of our pyridostigmine bromide pills that we were given uh, at 9 p.m. Um, pyridostigmine bromide is a, uh, is a prescription medicine that is used to treat a condition called myasthenia gravis, which is a, a nervous disorder. Um, and the, uh, the the reason that they wanted us all to take uh, pyridostigmine uh, bromide tablets was uh, it was supposed to uh, uh, cause the uh, recovery time from nerve agent poisoning um, to to get us to uh, recover much quicker if we uh, encountered nerve agent, specifically VX nerve agent, which is very very nasty stuff. Um. Anyway, uh, you know, back in Garrison in Texas, when I would fly, they they wouldn't let me take uh, Benadryl and go fly. Hmm. Uh, and take a nap while uh, you were doing it. Yeah, well, uh, you know, they had certain things you weren't allowed to take because of the, you know, possible implications on flying. And I thought it was pretty interesting that they were able to just give everybody wholesale uh, this prescription medicine that affects the nervous system uh, and to send us out to go fly. Uh, and of course, I've never practiced flying wearing a charcoal suit, but I had to go fly out that night. Um, and, uh, you know, the sheer, uh, layering of things on top of us, uh, at all times was just wearying. Uh, we had a, of course, a Kevlar helmet to walk around with. Um, <clears throat> we had, uh, and then that, and that's, significantly heavy and then there's uh you know the, this chemical protective suit uh and then a protective chemical protective mask uh and gloves and boots uh to go with the chemical protective suit and um then we had to carry uh two one and a half liter bottles of water with us everywhere we went because uh, they were worried we were going to get dehydrated. And what else? Um, and then, of course, all of 
you know, my flight gear, my survival vest, my uh, helmet, and uh, gas mask, I mean, uh, oxygen mask that was attached to my helmet. Um, oh, what else? Uh, okay. Of course, all my... You had mentioned that it would be cool, and I, as you were saying that, I was thinking about, and so much has changed since I was in, but uh, did you have a fill jacket like we used to have, the, a fatigue fill jacket? And if so, was it in the uh, chocolate chip range like everything else? No, we didn't have chocolate chip field jackets. And keep in mind, uh, when I was flying, I was wearing the, you know, the pickle suit or the sage green uh, Nomex flight suit. And, uh, and then, of course, we had Nomex uh, flight jackets that uh, went over that. It had a lightweight and a heavyweight flight jacket to go over that um and then of course uh you know uh since i had a leadership position i had a lot of uh papers and things to keep up with so i also had one of those uh olive drab canvas uh map cases that i wore around my and everything was designed to hang around your neck um from your survival vest to your your helmet when you weren't, your flight helmet when you weren't wearing it, to your, uh, you name, uh, uh, it was like moving your whole household goods whenever you walked around somewhere. (laughs) Uh, Oh, I forgot to mention a pistol. That was my uh, ever-present companion. Uh, I would hang it uh, outside the shower when I was taking a shower. Well, always where I could keep an eye on it. Um, yeah, so it was, uh, you know, and uh, so I remember going down to the briefing tent uh, for my pre-flight briefing from the operations officer, and then uh, I asked him, I said, uh, is the war starting tonight? And he said, we haven't been given the word. And I said, uh, you know, we're not, uh, we're, our operation is not on the, the D-Day air tasking order. Uh, we're not supposed to be flying when the war kicks off. And he said, yeah, I know. I said, okay, well, um, uh, am I supposed to wear my charcoal suit to go fly? And the answer was yes. And I said, I got this pill here. You expect me to take this pill? Yes. And then you take me, expect me to take this pill and go fly. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, um, we had, uh, we had to run up the, uh, the aircraft, uh, or power up the aircraft with a ground power unit to align the inertial navigation system. It didn't take anywhere between 30 minutes to 45 minutes. So we'd have two aircraft powered up and the, and the systems aligning. Uh, and then I would pre-flight one, and if it failed the pre-flight inspection, I'd immediately move on to my backup. But I, uh, I pre-flighted my primary, and then I went pre-flighted my backup, and then uh, I went to the uh, the crew chief, 
who was going to launch me, and I, I said, uh, has there been any word from the operation uh, down to the maintenance tent? He said, no, sir. I said, well, um, then I'm, uh, I'm going to go ahead and fly this mission. And he said, yes, sir, that's what they want you to do. I remember uh, my enlisted observer at the, at, on that particular mission was a uh, staff sergeant by the name of uh, Mullins, Staff Sergeant Mullins, uh, who was a very good soldier and very good at his job. We uh, we climbed in. They gave us the word to crank up. So we did, detached from Grand Power, and... Uh, they marshaled us out of there, and I called for takeoff. And we took off. The um, so we were supposed to. The first thing we were supposed to do when we took off was, uh, you know, after uh, clearing, you know, with uh, from the tower over to uh, departure control, we would uh, contact. Uh, the AWACS aircraft and asked for what was known as a sweet and sour check. And what that means is we had four different modes of transponder uh, for our aircraft uh, that indicated all sorts of things, the type of aircraft and the type of mission that we were on and uh, some uh, secret uh, identification friend or foe uh, uh, items. Uh, so that air, the uh, air defense wouldn't shoot us down. Now, let me ask. Our, our uh, own air defense. You were you were flying at what three to five thousand feet, and the uh, AWACS is at what thirty thirty five thousand. Uh, oh, they were probably somewhere about thirty thousand. I would guess their mission was just to orbit. But you know what their their radar would send out basically an interrogation uh, and then our transponder would receive that interrogation and respond with the code so uh, there was no was no uh, problem uh, in the mission area we flew our mission at about uh, 10 or 11,000 feet on a uh, side looking airborne radar mission which is what I was doing that day and so uh we, we took off, I guess, just before midnight, local, and uh, on the 16th, and uh, we uh, did a sweet and sour check with uh, AWACS, and they told us that every one of our transponders was uh, operating correctly and, you know, being received properly. So... Uh, our next uh, radio call was to call uh, as we transitioned through the uh, the sector for uh, an airfield called Jubile, which was being operated by the Marines. And uh, so I called Jubile Approach. I tell them I'm transiting their area. And they would uh, roger me. They rogered me. And I went and I called them, told them when I was clear of their area. Well, then midnight happened. <laughs> and uh well, no, we need to stop there and take our take a break right quick. Right. 
And um, okay, we'll be back with remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm right after a couple of messages. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. On August 8th, 2022, in violation of the Fourth Amendment, the FBI performed a most egregious search of a former president's home. The Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution provides that the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched, and the persons or things to be seized. The Fourth Amendment originally enforced the notion that each man's home is his castle, secure from unreasonable searches and seizures of property by the government. We must take a stand and take back our country. Start taking back our country from the liberal wokes by voting locally for conservative Republicans. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And now let's get back to remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm and Philip Farsberg. Well, David, uh, so uh, while we're out uh, flying, after I checked in with AWAX and after uh, I had uh, uh, transitioned through the Jubile airspace, uh, that's when midnight happened. And unbeknownst to me, at midnight, <clears throat> uh, that was uh, H hour for the uh, for all the devastation to be wrought. And uh, having not been uh, anticipated, uh, we for about an hour before the the uh, all the the bad stuff uh, began to happen. Uh, we went to radio listening silence. And on radio listening silence, um, the airwaves just got real, real quiet. And, uh, you know, from time to time, you get that old thinking feeling, as they say, and uh, get a little uh, nervous about what might be going on. I hadn't heard anything from anybody. It uh, doesn't seem to be much chatter here. So I uh, I made a radio call 
uh, on an alternate frequency to AWACS to see uh, if they were still there, and I got no response. So uh, I switched over to uh, a uh, <clears throat> my backup frequency on my uh, that. Uh, well, I tried that on VHF. I switched up the backup on UHF. Uh, got no response. I uh, then I tried. I tried all the uh, UHF and VHF frequencies that we had been given, and then uh, <clears throat> and then I called them back on uh, on VHF and UHF guard, and still received no response. And so I uh, <clears throat> I turned to Sergeant Mullins and I said. Uh, Sergeant Mullins, what does the book say, our mission book, when uh, we lose uh, radio contact with uh, AWAC? And he says, uh, the book says, return to base. And I said, okay, for your, for, you know, you're my witness here. We're not, we're not chickening out or anything, but uh, I've lost radio contact. He said, yes, sir. So we... Uh, we returned back to uh, King Fahd International Airport in Dammam. Uh, oh, another thing is when I uh, when I turned around and I called uh, Jubile Approach uh, to see if they were up, uh, had their ears up. Uh, Jubile Approach immediately uh, responded to me saying uh, that I was loud and clear. So uh, that's when I knew. Um, you need to get out of here. So I, uh, we went back to King Fod and landed, um, called, uh, operations on my way in and said, you know what, I, I returned, I lost radio contact, I returned to the base and, uh, I asked for an explanation. He said, uh, <clears throat> we're going to come down, you know, pick you up. I said, do you want me to launch my backup? And he said, no. So, uh, uh, I got, uh, backup, uh, uh, went, went to the maintenance tent, waited, and, uh, the driver came down and told me it's no longer Desert Storm, a Desert Shield, it's now Desert Storm, and we're, uh, we're in shooting war. And so, I, uh, picked up my logbook, and I changed the mission code from service mission to combat mission. And thus, I was the first uh, individual uh, to log combat time in the OV-1 Mohawk uh, since uh, we had ended hostilities in Vietnam. That's my story. Hmm. Very interesting. I know... I love listening to your your stories, and uh, I hope others feel the same way I do. And uh, the thought when you weren't getting radio contact, you had to have a million thoughts going through your head. Yeah, well, our battalion commander was pretty, um, well... He was quick to tell people that they were 
being cowards or, you know, whatever, uh, impugning your motives. And so it caused me a great deal of second guessing, uh, because I didn't want to hear it when I got back. But, uh, it was clearly, uh, we hadn't been invited to the dance. You know, I sort of chalked that up to, uh, interoperability problems between the United States Air Force and uh, Army Aviation. Uh, I think the uh, the Air Force gives a lot more uh, uh, acknowledgement to the uh, Navy and Marine Corps uh, aviators and uh, pretty short shrift to uh, Army Aviation. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the Air Force likes to do everything in a, in a formatted way with lots of paperwork and, um, you know, lots of structure and, and formality. And they have this thing that's uh, inviolable, the, the air tasking order. And, uh, that you know, you have to be put on that air tasking order from, you know, months in advance and, uh, you know, whatever. Uh and that's just not how Army Aviation works. You know, we we just get up and go where we need to go. And, uh, you know, you're going to have to excuse us because that's what we need to do. Um, and, you know, some uh, years later, uh, back when uh, there was a no-fly zone in Iraq uh, and it was being enforced by uh, Air Force combat air patrol I don't know if you uh, recall this but uh, there was in fact uh, two army Blackhawk helicopters that uh, were flying and both shot down by US Air Force F-15s who flew right up to them looked at them uh, identified them as hind aircraft uh, Soviet style hind aircraft and uh, and shot them down and they were both uh, uh, U.S. Army Blackhawk helicopters and uh, there were a great number of troops on board. I'm not sure the Air Force cared at all that they had killed some Army aviators until they later learned that there were some Air Force personnel on those helicopters. Um, anyway, my personal experience was <clears throat> the Air Force uh, didn't much uh, care uh, if they were, uh, well, I think I'm going to stop right there. You know, that I would have, you know, who knows whether the pilot uh, the, that shot him down was is still alive or not, but I don't recall it making the news here but it may have and I somehow missed it but that pilot had has if he's still alive has to live with himself and uh, wouldn't he have had yeah, to well, the army folks are dead yeah I realize that but didn't didn't the air force pilot have to uh, get firing orders uh, he was exonerated hmm that that doesn't leave a lot of excuse when they're supposed to be able to recognize our planes. It give you a lot of comfort, does it? Not really, no. 
but yeah. it's amazing that you know I I don't recall that story, and that's one that I think I would have paid attention to. You know, um, yeah, I believe it was nineteen ninety three. Hmm. We're going to take our final break, and we'll be back with Philip Forsberg right after this. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Start taking back our country from the liberal wokes by voting locally for conservative Republicans. And want to remind everybody of our great programming. Um, if you want to find out what's going on with doctors, you listen to the Doctors Lounge, and uh, every that's every week at eight a.m. on Thursday, and uh, they just do an absolutely fantastic job of. Telling it like it is, quite frankly, and uh, it's been, you know, we get more and more comments about that show, and we also get a lot of comments about our show called A Veteran's Place, and that's uh, with Dr. He's a veteran, and it's uh, Dr. Moeller that's not only a dental surgeon, but he's also a medical doctor, and... Uh, he, he served as a medic in Vietnam and uh, has developed a help for anyone that suffers from PTSD that can't sleep at night. And it's a stint that he that you put in. You you it's in and out. It's a, just a mouthpiece basically, but it's a very prescribed mouthpiece, and everybody's an individual and. Uh, if you're a veteran and you're suffering from PTSD and sleep disorder, you need to listen to that show. And that uh, is also on Thursdays at uh, 10 o'clock. So tune in to A Veteran's Place. And uh, let's get back now to Philip Forsberg talking about Desert Shield. And we've gone from Desert Shield to Desert Storm now. And Phil's up there flying around checking it out. Phil, back to you. Well, uh, yeah, so that, that's the story of my first combat mission. I did, when I took off, it wasn't a combat mission, but somewhere up there while I was flying, uh, the hostilities had begun. And I'm quite glad that I returned back because who knows uh, what, what awaited me if I had gone actually up onto my mission track I'd have been flying right along the border uh, at about 11,000 feet and uh, of course they wanted us to fly real real slow so that our uh, imagery would be uh, 
would be uh, adequate uh, or would not get what they call stretched. If our if our ground speed was too high, the, the imagery analysts would tell us that we had stretched the uh, stretched the imagery and distorted it. So uh, <clears throat> they had us flying as slow as we could uh, safely fly. So uh, and of course we were on a gyro stabilized straight line track. So uh, we would have been just slightly easier to shoot down than, say, an airship. Philip, uh, let me ask you, because yeah. I'm fascinated with what you're talking about. Uh, so how many planes can an AWACS track at the same time? And also, if, if say, you had gone ahead with your mission and... Uh, an Air Force pilot checked in and said, I've got a bogey at 12 o'clock, and it happened to be you. Uh, what's the reaction, and how many, and how and I guess I wonder too, you've got, I know it's like a, uh, AWACS is sort of like a, a mini tower in some ways, air traffic control, but, at the same token, how many people are there in in the AWACS that are following each and every plane that's in the air? Well, uh, I don't know the capacity of them to track targets uh, in the area or, or a specific aircraft. Um, the uh, <clears throat> you know the plan was to go on radio listening silent. Right, so nobody's supposed to be transmitting. So obviously, anybody transmitting didn't get the word, which would have been me. Uh, and uh, so, it, you know, the AWACS is a Boeing 707 aircraft, uh, also known as the Jurassic Jet. Uh, very, very old, 1950s or 60s technology, uh, straight pipe turbojet engines four of them uh, and so uh, it requires uh, you know an engineer a navigator two pilots I don't know you know just to operate the, the airframe itself and then uh, in the back they could have had a platoon of uh, workers you know they it's my I've never been on board one of them but it's my understanding they sit at workstations and how they divide the the, the duties, um, I'm not really aware. My concern was if they had, you know, if there was a special uh, transition point that everyone except for myself had been briefed upon, then it could be that all those identification friend or foe codes may have been uh, intended to switch to something code that I was not loaded with on my aircraft, uh, in which case I would have lit up hot on any of the uh, air defense or combat air patrol uh, radar as not having, not being read into the plan and obviously enemy. So, <clears throat> uh, it did not surprise me when I uh, heard on April the 14th of 1994 that during uh, Operation Provide Comfort that 
uh, two Air Force F-15s shot down to uh, U.S. Army Black Hawk, killed 26 individuals. Hmm. You know, I, I'm sitting here thinking, I, I know I would have paid attention to that, and I, I just don't remember or recall any mention of it on the news. Um, and I can understand why, but at the same token, we're supposed to be an open society, too. But And I could be mistaken. I might have just missed it. But that... Now, were they being directed, or was that an AWACS that was in control at the time? Oh, yes. Okay, so... They just messed up, screwed up, and cost 26 airmen their lives. That's... Uh, well... They were not, uh, there were a few airmen from the Air Force. There were at least, uh, six soldiers in the U.S. Army that were killed, plus individuals from, uh, the, uh, there were officers from the U.S., United Kingdom, France, Turkey, Mm. Uh, the Kurds, uh, U.S. political advisor in northern Iraq, uh, was the international fratricide. Did they have one of their infamous committees check into it? Uh, well, I've taken the liberty of emailing you the government accountability, uh, office, um, report to Congress, uh, on the incident. Hmm. Sad, sad. But, you know, uh, it, it's hard to, when it's 26 individuals, it's hard to uh, tolerate that as friendly fire. And uh, yet I guess that's the way they classified it, correct? Uh, well, they're calling it fratricide, so... Um, as the, the old Cobra pilots that trained me and who had flown in Vietnam would often say, you know, receiving friendly fire, returning same. <laughs> well, yeah. it's, uh, you know, this is something that when nobody's ever served and they don't understand that the, the trauma and we talk about this on a veteran's place. The What happens with the individual that has PTSD? And it can show up years later. It can show up almost immediately and on and on and on. And uh, it can be friendly fire that causes your, your problem. Or it can be, you know, it's just on and on of... of Different things that can can have or lasting maybe effects. Or how about a, an arbitrary decision to give everybody all five hundred thousand troops in the theater the same prescription uh, nerve medicine? Yeah. Or to march them into a tent and give them a uh, non 
uh, tested uh, inoculation, which you won't even tell them what it is. Um, and then if you go to claim any kind of damage from it, they're going to ask you for documentation. When I asked them to write it in my shot records, they said, well, we can't do that or your shot records would become classified. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of abuses that go on. Um, so let me just say, David, anybody who's suffered these things needs to, uh, uh, if they've had lasting effects of it, they need to uh, contact the service officer and file their claims uh, with the VA. And uh, go get yourself a service officer who knows what he's doing and doesn't take no for an answer. And a service officer can be found at most of the service organizations, uh, DAV. Disabled uh, American Veterans, the Veterans of Foreign War, the American Legion. There's a whole host of them. I've used up all your time today, David, just spinning my yarn. No, no, this has been, this has been great, Phil, and I, I, it's, it's the insight that, you know, as people will listen to this show, Live and then they'll listen to it. There'll be a lot of people that'll download it and they will appreciate what you went through as well as many of your peers went through it at the same time and, and remember Desert Chill and Desert Storm. That was kicking Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait one way or the other. And, uh, it was a necessity and, like I've, I've said many, many times, uh, who responds first? That's the United States. Whether it's an ambulance, a fire truck, or police, or our military, we are the first responders to almost any and everything. With that being said, I guess we're going to close it out for the day, Phil, and thank you as always for I love your stories, and other people do too. And uh, I have no doubt that you'll have some more for next week. I'll give it a try. Yes, sir. Take care. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Bye. David. Bye. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.